Join me on March 14th as I'm joined by Condé Nast Traveller's senior editor, Megan Spirell, to share a behind-the-scenes peek into the making of our Women Who Travel Power List. But there's so much more waiting for you in the full article. From film directors to war journalists to wildlife ecologists, these women are reshaping the travel landscape and leaving a lasting impact on the world. Tune in to hear why Megan and myself are so excited about the 15 women we've chosen to highlight. Subscribe to cntraveler.com today to access the complete list and be inspired by their incredible journeys. And for a limited time, our listeners can unlock everything Traveller has to offer for just $5. Simply use code POD5, that's P-O-D-5, at checkout to access exclusive travel insights, breathtaking destinations, and invaluable tips to fuel your adventure spirit. All for just $5. And remember, every adventure starts with just one step. Join us in celebrating the power of women in travel. Visit cntraveler.com today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's your women who travel hosts, Meredith Carey and... Lale Arikoglu. And we're back in the Kanye Nast studio after an amazing weekend meeting a bunch of you at our first ever live podcast at the Eaton Hotel in D.C., this week's episode featured three incredible restaurant owners who are shaping the DC food scene right now and whose restaurants are all on our list of the best places to eat in the city. We had Jamie Leeds, chef and owner of Hank's Oyster Bar, Hank's Cocktail Bar and, you guessed it, Hank's Pasta Bar. Amy Brandwine, chef and owner of Centralina and the soon-to-open Piccolina. And Rose Previtt, owner of Compass Rose and Maidan, one of Bon Appetit's best new restaurants in the U.S., and, I will add, Obama-approved restaurant. <laughs> we hope you enjoy this episode, and keep an eye open in our Facebook group for more upcoming live podcasts and meetups. Enjoy. The first question I have, I'll start with you, Jamie, is just how did you get into food? Hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so I got really lucky getting into food. I actually started out in advertising. I was an advertising copywriter when I was, that's what I went to school for. And um, I fired from my job and I wanted to spend the summer on unemployment and hang out and play with my friends. And um, my sister said that probably wouldn't be a great idea. And I have, there's a restaurant down through me and we were in New York City at the time that needs a cook. Why don't you go get the job? So I thought, okay. Let me go try. I had done some catering, and I had been, you know, I had a little bit of a cooking experience, not a lot. 
I took this job, I got it, and I just took to it immediately and um, just loved the atmosphere, the people. I fit in with a bunch of other misfits and um, it was just a, a perfect match for me. Was there like a moment where you sort of had a light bulb go up above your head and you were like, this is the only thing I want? Well, yeah, I, I had questioned whether or not I could actually do it as a career because there were, at that time, not successful women. There were a few, but not that many. And I thought, you know, I wanted to be in a creative field and I also wanted to be able to survive um, and make some money. But, you know, this kind of grabbed me and, yeah, I felt like I had no choice at that time. Like, I, I realized there was like a light bulb went off that this was what I wanted to do with my life. And Amy, how about you? What was your story? Actually, like Jamie, I went to school for something else. I was, <laughs> I went, uh, I have a government background, so law, that kind of thing. But uh, I ended up spending more time reading about cooking and, and I had this idea that I wanted to start, uh, this is a long time ago, but a pizza business. So, um, and I ended up uh, just basically quitting my job, went to culinary school, and then I did my externship, which is like your stage, you know, to, to apply what you learned. Yeah, I just jumped off a cliff, basically. <laughs> and Rose, what was your? I have my own. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. I'm Rose Previtt. I am not a chef. Um, but I did grow up cooking with my mom, who is a Lebanese-American lady who had a catering company out of our kitchen. So very mom and pop. Uh, cooked with her in a very rural Ohio community. So I was always into the business of cultural education and from a tough lady. And uh, <laughs> my mom didn't get her own brick and mortar restaurant until she was 60 years old. She finally got it because she, my dad retired and she didn't want to be at home with him anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, she, just, she just sold it after 10 years. And I mean, but she's 70. And food and family were synonymous with each other growing up. So it is love to me. And so though I am not as formally trained as these ladies, I did bartend and, um, and then I actually ended up meeting my husband he was my waitress. I was his waitress. Oh, it'd be funny if he was my waitress. <laughs> I was his waitress uh, at a bar on Capitol Hill, and then I bartended and served um, until we moved abroad. And I think my, my light bulb moment um, was when I was abroad with him for his job and having a crisis, and I realized I could put all these pieces of, of service industry experience, you know, family history, and what I learned from my family, and then my travels, and kind of, maybe I could put it all, mix it up in, in a restaurant, but um, that came a little bit later. So, yeah, I guess it was also an accident. Well, and you were in Russia when you had that light bulb moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I was so angry at the time. Um, I was always bartending and serving, but I was also working for nonprofits, going to graduate school, then working in government. And then my husband said, I'm a fabulous journalist, and I've always had this dream of being a foreign correspondent. Don't you want to go with me? And I was so good at study abroad in the south of Spain. And without like realizing what I was doing, I got on a plane, left my job. We were living in New York. And I gave it all up, and I went with him to this place where I didn't understand anything, and I don't have kids. We didn't have kids then. We, have, we don't have kids now. And so basically, I became like a 30-year-old housewife. I had more time to think. I like to be a little dramatic and say I, like, I literally like saw my soul in Russia. It, like really examined my life and where I wanted to be. And if you've ever read like a Russian novel, I hadn't until I moved to Russia. And I'm like, this is why you're all so sad and everybody dies. And like, 
And that's where I was. It was not a tragedy. I was just like really examining my life. And you turn 30 and you like also think about your life. Like, and so honestly, on a train in Siberia in December, it was so cold. I was like, we're going home and I'm opening a restaurant. And I know that sounds ridiculous and a little eat, pray, love, but honestly, it's true. <laughs> I just really want to read an Eat, Pray, Love set in Russia, though. <laughs> um, Amy and Jamie, do you guys have any inspiration from your travels that has carried over into your restaurants? Um, sure. I was fortunate enough to spend a year cooking in France in the early 90s. Uh, I was working for Danny Meyer, and uh, he actually was pivotal in sending me to France. He set up stages for me. So I did stages in, um, in Nice at the Hotel Negresco. From there, I went to Alsace. So I worked in all two-star Michelin restaurants so that I could actually get a feel for the food. And it was an incredible experience. And that's when it really it kind of turned that um, the food doesn't come from a can. You know, um, <laughs> I'm also a self-taught chef. I didn't go to culinary school. So I, I was learning as I was going. And um, we would pick herbs from the garden that they grew. We would get, you know, the hunter would come by with the deer strapped on his back. And, you know, so that was the real turning point for me for wanting to bring this, like, incredible fresh food back to the States and cook. Um, well, you know, I had a, a strange experience because I was trained by an Italian chef. So he would have all these cooks come in from all over Italy. Um, so when I first started traveling in Italy, it was really interesting because it was really getting reinforcement of everything I had been taught in America. And it was like, if there's one thing I really take away from all the places I've been is just that... Uh, in Italy, in France, um, I just went to Ethiopia, even there, there's a very like strong kind of relationship with food, meaning like sort of in America, it's a little bit like we want this, we want that, we can't slow down. Um, you know, I want to pick it up on my app. Overseas, you know, it's sort of they have this, I guess it's a slow food mentality where, you know, you really see what's being grown. You know, somebody's usually making it by hand. And Ethiopia, I just went just a couple months ago, and, and that was a really eye-opening experience. Um, when I saw people literally like growing crops and then making their food like on the side of that crop and like lighting a fire, kind of seeing how close they are to every single thing that is around them because they have to that way, really was sort of an eye-opening experience. And you've got quite involved with DC's Urban Farms, yes. correct? Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So I am a partner with DC Urban Greens, which is a urban farm. It's urban farming with dirt, not hydroponic, that kind of thing. Um, they're feeding their community, and they're also putting people to work there. You know, in the areas where they have the farms, you know, it can be like a two-mile um, distance to the nearest grocery store. And in those grocery stores, they're not, the food is not, the vegetables are not necessarily fresh. There's no value placed on eating um, healthy as far as like, you know, the businesses that are operating, it seems like it's, a, they're an afterthought. So DC Urban Greens is basically a nonprofit. They just actually dropped off two days ago, which was like so inspiring because it's like snow outside and they've got their hoop house and they're literally like harvesting the greens to ship them over. And what it's done for people who live there um, has been really inspirational to me. It's something I hope that we can do more of, you know, it doesn't have to be a farm three 
hours away that's like this perfect, beautiful bucolic farm. Maybe it's something in the middle of a city and using land that has not been utilized properly and, and putting people to work, you know? Jamie, you work with Danny Meyer. He sends you off into France. You get all this experience and then you come back and you want to open a restaurant. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, was it hard? Uh, no. It was easy, right? <laughs> Uh, so I came back. I was going to work for Danny, but he suggested I go to work for Richard Melman. And that way I could learn, because I had the cooking down, but I didn't have the administration and the financial background that I needed. So he suggested I go work for Rich. And I, you know, he wanted me to cook Spanish food. He had a Spanish concept that he wanted to Americanize more. So I did a tasting for him, and he loved it, and he hired me as the chef, and he showed me the restaurant, Cafe Barbariba, and he showed me, we walked into the front room, and I'm like, cool, I could do this. This is a small little place, and they had, you know, a bar, and so then when I start the job, it turns out I go into the restaurant, and there's not just one little room, there's another room, and then there's another room, and another room, and it turns out to be a 400-seat restaurant. <laughs> but I had no idea it was. I am not lying. So, <laughs> I've got myself into a pickle here. But I, you know, I made it happen. Anyway, I went off on a tangent. I don't even remember the original question. <laughs> but I thought that was funny. Starting um, a restaurant is hard, though. Oh, yeah. Clearly. Starting a restaurant. So, yeah, so I learned, so that's the thing, is I learned the financials and the numbers, because that's really what it's about. It's a, bu it's a business, right? Um, I, I mean, I love feeding people. I love making people happy through food. But at the end of the day, it's a business. It's not easy getting the money, especially as a woman, unfortunately. Um, you know, and getting your first restaurant is really hard. Um, so when I opened my first place, I had started looking in New York, and I couldn't do it there. And then I came to D.C., and I looked in D.C., and I found a spot, and I cashed in my 401k, I took out a small sack of my house, and I got a $50,000 loan from a friend. I put everything on the line, and I was able to open this space and, um, on a dime. And luckily, we opened to huge success, but it was very scary there for a while. So, Rose, what did you learn from your mom's business that carried into starting Compass Rose and then on to the next restaurant? Well, it's funny, because what I learned is how not to make money for my mom. <laughs> she has a passion, but did not have the business sense, which is why I cannot reiterate like what I said more. Um, so a little of it's that I learned I needed to not do it that way. Like You work really hard, but you don't see the financial benefit, and it's a constant stress and a constant strain on your family. And so... I think what I did learn was obviously hard work, right? She's a beast. She opened a brick and mortar restaurant at six, and we were like prying it out of her cold hands at like 70. And we're like, you have to stop working because you know, I have three brothers and we're all looking at her like, this is not healthy. Um, so work ethic, I say for sure. And how you get through when you're so freaking tired that all you want to do is take a nap, but there's nobody to do it for you. And I definitely got that from my mom. Amy, you have been based in DC for most of your life, correct? All of it. All of it. Okay, great. Um, what is it about DC specifically that you feel like makes it such a great food city? Versus diversity, you know, 
it's just becoming now like a really diverse food scene, even though we've had so many um, ethnicities in the city and the suburbs for so long. So I come from Arlington, and in Arlington, you know, you can go anywhere and have anything. You know, you can have Thai, you can have Ethiopian, you can have, you know, Japanese, you can, um, you know, wonderful restaurants. It, it just never made it into the mainstream until the last 10 years, you know? So um, I think when I was growing up here, I, at school, there was just a lot of people coming, immigrating here and, and from Laos and all these things going on. And uh, I always knew that there was just a, an amazing diversity in the area. It just never came out in the food in the popular mainstream and celebrated like it is now. All of you obviously are women and you all own very, very successful restaurants and restaurant groups. Women are owning it in DC right now. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, I started Compass Rose, how old was I? I guess it was like 33, 34 when we opened. So you're already a woman, which already hurts, right? And I had a lot of men who I asked questions to who like tapped me on the head and basically were like, what a nice idea, young girl, that you want to open a restaurant. And I got a lot of that. So it was like age and gender. But what was surprising is I was actually helped along the way um, by that bar where I met my husband. Uh, the guy that owned it kind of mentored me years later. I worked there for like seven years and I went to him for help on how to start a restaurant or a bar. And he ended up being my partner both at Compass Rose and at Maidan. And so it was really nice to have someone who knew the business to help. And that's a man, so to be fair, <laughs> that's why I bring him up. Um, and he believed in me when a lot of other people didn't. And he got his start through another person who already owned something that believed in him and taught him the business. So I don't know if this is just a DC thing, but I find a lot of people are willing to mentor you and you know pay forward without calling it that. So I do find, and I, I think I can think of other people that got their start from people who had been helped before and just wanted to keep helping and partner and give money and, and advice. And so we're small that way. And I think a lot of us grew up together and um, there's a kinship. And it's not that we're not competitive, but I think maybe the barrier to entry, especially when we started, was also a little lower. Like costs are not quite New York still. We're getting there. So I'd say maybe barrier to entry and a community of people who are, are actually willing to help each other. And that's so, I mean, I feel like we talk about this a lot, but it, you know, having male allies that are willing to mentor you and help you in industries where you might not be able to necessarily move up is incredibly important. I'm going to bring a tricky question for you to compete over. Um, <laughs> of course, it's not always like that in the restaurant industry. And it's been a year since the restaurant industry had its own reckoning with Me Too. And I was wondering whether the three of you feel like anything's changed. So I think, um, you know, I think things have changed dramatically in the last year. Quite frankly, media attention on women chefs, um, we didn't have any. And so I think, uh, you know, people paying attention to women and what they're doing, women entrepreneurship, um, has been a big change in the last year. I mean, you know, Jamie talked about funding and, and, and the challenges is that, you know, without having tons of media clips or the accolades don't come quite as easily as it comes for, for the guys, it's very hard to get that financing. So I think um, all this media attention has been um, really important to kind of level the playing field. We're not there yet, but it certainly changes the dynamic and forces people to kind of re-examine how they've been viewing women chefs and restaurateurs and then just sexual harassment. Um, I think as an industry, they've 
kind of everybody has embraced the idea that this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, please don't make sexual comments to your lock hook. Don't grab their ass. Like, that's not good, you know? So I think, like, having the Restaurant Association, for example, Washington did sexual harassment training um, and invited a lot of people to um, participate and send managers. I think that's been a huge improvement in, you know, getting things kind of going in the right direction. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> what you said. No. Um, there's no question there's been a difference. Um, and within my company, you know, I own five restaurants, so I have over 300 employees. We do a lot of training. We do, we do have automatic, you know, sexual harassment training and all of that awareness stuff. But, and, we've, and I've always been very particular about that. But, you know, we're a motley crew. You know, we... We work very hard, very close quarters together, long hours, and you know we become a family. You really become it's a family-oriented kind of atmosphere. You know, I think that's maybe where things might have slipped through the cracks. Not that it's okay, and I think that the the Me Too movement has really heightened the awareness, like I said before, and even you know down to you know the line cooks and the prep cooks and the dishwashers, and it's really made a big difference. Rose. Yeah, see, we all agree, so it's not so... No, um, no obviously, awareness would have been exactly the way I'm going. Probably any of us would have called ourselves feminists before. And I still had some moments of reflection where I knew I could be doing better. I like to think of myself the whole time as a good operator and someone who's thoughtful. And as we really started to examine some policies, and we found some things that I was really upset by, and we made improvements. And again, if we're the good guys, you know, and, and realize we had improvements, there's, there's definitely a lot of reckoning going on. Um, but I am you know, personally thankful for a few aha moments, and it's, it's changed the way that we handle things. So I, I think I've seen a difference, and I think even the the way certain employees who were never verbal before are now empowered, and, and that's exciting. And I, but sometimes I'm like, why didn't you say that sooner? <laughs> um, so, so good all the way around. Can you guys each name someone you think is really like killing it in either with their restaurant or bar? Anywhere. <laughs> the whole world. I think Amy Brand was. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So do I. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll say one person that sticks out in my mind is Dominique Crenn, just because she just seems to be like just on fire, you know, and uh, Michelin stars and like speaking her mind and not holding back and saying controversial things. I think like that has been really, I think she sticks out. There's so many different people though. I mean, that's just the one person, so. So have you all heard of Magnolia Bakery? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So the owners of Magnolia Bakery, Bobby Lloyd, she's a woman, is, she calls herself the chief baking officer. <laughs> anyway, she's incredible. She's just a badass of a woman. We actually work together in New York City, and we grew up in the business together, and she's just uh, an amazing entrepreneur, credible you know, boss, and she's just opening Magnolia Bakeries all over the world, so... I think this is, a little bit of this is the part, too, of the, you know, why women do well in D.C. Um, I think there are a lot of, as a more recent owner, I think I look up to people like Jamie, who came first. Like, you've been doing this a long time. And so I, there's a lot of respect, and there's a lot of women in D.C. who came, came first, who paved the way. And then I would say, you know, 
because they get into restaurants, I think this is fair. But you know, Jody from Eden's. Yeah. Eden's development is run by women. Is run by a woman who hires a lot of women, who empowers a lot of women, and um, she's one of the biggest badasses I know. And as one, I mean, living through two buildouts of two restaurants and knowing how traumatic it was, that's what this woman does for a living. And she came up in the <laughs> ranks and stands among men every day. And I'm like, respect, you know. So amazing. Well. If people want to keep track of what you guys are doing, um, where can people find you on social media or in real life? So for Jamie Leeds, so Hank's Oyster Bar, Hank's Pasta Bar, and Hank's Cocktail Bar. We have websites, Facebook, Instagram, I don't know, all that stuff. (laughs) You're not hard to find. (laughs) And Rose. so it's just me. There's not a lot of Rose Previtts in the world at Rose Previtt. I think that's me. Um, we lean a little heavy on the Instagram as opposed to the Facebook and Twitter, but we do try. And Amy? Um, I'm at Chantralina, D.C., and Picolina, D.C. is not really active right now, but it will be soon. <laughs> and when is the restaurant opening? Um, July is the drop date, meaning... 2019. The, yeah, the end date, so... Amazing. Well, I'm at... Hey there, Mayor. And I'm at Lale Hannah on Instagram. <laughs> and we're so grateful for the Eaton Hotel for hosting us this afternoon, evening, nighttime. Uh, thanks for listening. Exit music. There we go. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts.